Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, everybody. Well, welcome to Sunday School at Trinity Presbyterian Church. And uh, we are glad for those of you that are joining us online, as well as those young men that have joined us in person. Um, all right, well, uh, today uh, we're continuing our study on what is God's Word. And so uh, we uh, had a little bit of a break last week, which was probably very refreshing for everybody, but now we're back. So um, we, are, uh, we have already talked about um, different parts of what we mean by uh, inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word and things like that. But today, we're going to talk about what it, how we are to interpret the Old Testament. Now, this isn't, uh, today we're not going to say everything there is to say about interpreting the Old Testament. Obviously, we have uh, about 45 minutes. So, this isn't going to be a sem- seminary-level class, but I hope the little tips that I give you today might help you as you go through uh, Old Testament stories. And, uh, and uh, so we'll just, let's just get started. We'll uh, have a word of prayer and we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your goodness to us, for the way you have uh, loved us, even at this strange time, uh, with the way things uh, are right now. We just pray for your wisdom and your help, even over uh, this lesson today. Help it to be a blessing to people. Help, uh, help us to be able to dig deeper into your word because of it. We ask for your uh, strength and help, uh, even through the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, I've been thinking about uh, why the Bible is written the way it's written. And maybe you have been thinking about that too. Uh, because I guess if I were to have written the Bible myself, I may have done it differently. Um, have you ever thought about that? I mean, we have all these different denominations. We have uh, the necessity of a reformation because of the way people were reading Scripture. Uh, we have uh, different ways that people are understanding different uh, books of the Bible, or how the Old and New Testament are supposed to work together or not work together. And we have all these different factions and different ways of looking at it. Wouldn't it have been made more sense, maybe, if we start, if the Bible started out with a nice catechism? Who is God? What is God? And then, you know, how many persons? And these three persons are one God. And we go through all that stuff, and then we get to a confession. That kind of spells it out for us. And then the last part would be a systematic theology. Wouldn't that make sense? No one would be able to argue. It'd be like, well, no, can't be an Arminian, I guess, because uh, it says right here in chapter 6 of the systematics that we can't do that. And, you know, everyone would get along. So what do you guys think? Why Why was it written this way? There's like stories and poetry. And even the part that seems kind of systematic in the New Testament is all contextualized within a story. 
So why stories? Because he gave us stories, right? Especially when we look in the Old Testament. Now, those, uh, those of you uh, young people that are watching this that have Old Testament names, I want you to listen carefully to this lesson because the Old Testament should be extra interesting to you with Old Testament names. What do we got? Uh, we got Zeke. We got Ruth. We got uh, Malachi. Samuel. Who else we have? What was that? Abigail. Y'all better be listening. If you're not listening, you're playing right now. You're missing out. This is important. All right? Okay. So, Old Testament names. It is interesting that the Old Testament starts off with the story of how the whole world began. And it's a story. So, what I want us to look at, if you look on your... Uh, on your little handout there, for those of you watching online, this was emailed to you promptly yesterday. <laughs> so you had plenty of time to print it out and forget about it till this moment. So, uh, so when we look at this, let's think of the Bible in, uh, in why is it that God uh, wrote in story form for us? Why don't you look at Genesis 1, 27. Genesis 1.27. It tells us how God created man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here we know that God created man in his own image. Now, this is not brand new to you. But I want you to think about what that might mean. That God chose to communicate to us through what he speaks. And today he speaks to us through his word, through scripture. And when he speaks, it is personal. I want you to put in your first blank there, God's image is a personal image. God's image is personal. God's image is not just these three distinct categories that we usually talk about, knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. Yes, it is those things. But those things don't have very much meaning unless we understand that God's image is a personal image. This means that God made us in a particular kind of way. So that particular kinds of communication would be relatable to us as we were made in a personal image, the image of God. For instance, if we look at the very next, uh, the very next uh, verse there, it says, God blessed them. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you're supposed to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it as people that are acting in the image of God, not just being in the image of God. So what we see in 128 is that God addresses man to act in God's image. So you're not just in God's image as a person, but you're acting out 
God's image as one who multiplies, subdues, and rules over the earth. And as we talked about last time I spoke to you, we were talking about uh, Westminster Confession of Faith 7.1, that God is relational to us in a covenantal way. In a covenantal way. That's your next That's your next blank there. So what does all this mean? What I'm trying to get across to us is that God has communicated to us this particular way because he made us in a particular way. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We would like things to be clearer, perhaps. And so we would like a logic book. But if you study logic, what you find is that logic is very unnatural. What do I mean by that? Logic is unnatural in that you have to subtract all the context of something and try and put it into an equation form. So we call that formal logic, where we have these symbols and we try to take sentences that are natural to us and make them unnatural by being as clear as we can using symbols and uh, different uh, syllogisms and things like that. And that's our way of trying to be as clear as possible. But what we're doing is something quite unnatural to who we are as people. Some people enjoy logic, as there are people that enjoy mathematics. I don't understand it but there are people that are that way, and we still love them. Uh, but they, uh, but it's still an unnatural way of dealing with the world. What is natural is stories. Why are stories natural? Because God made us personal. Logic and mathematics are designed to take the personal away so that we can dissect ideas and look at things and understand things in a different way, but it certainly isn't a natural way. And so stories, if you look at your next blank there, stories are essential to accommodate the covenantal way God made man to be. So what I'm trying to say is, that even though Aristotle really wanted us to believe that humans are just logical beings, that we're these uh, we're computer programs with uh, really good software, that is not what we are. We are personal people. We are in the image of God, not in a mechanical way and not in a, in a merely rational way, but we are in the image of God in a personal way, living in a personal world that God has made, and we are to act in the way God made us covenantally, or if I can even put it, personally. So, the Bible, and maybe you young people listening today will uh, attest to this, the Bible seems to be one big confusing book sometimes, right? Uh, It starts off kind of easy because you're like, oh, this is the story of how everything began. God made everything. Cool. But then you get into later books and uh, maybe just a few books down and you start learning about these laws that some of them don't apply today and some of them do apply today. And there was shellfish involved and 
we're not sure what all that's about. And then there's these crazy stories. Some of them are really crazy, especially if you read the book of Judges. There's really crazy things going on there. And then you then you end up into this into the prophets, and they're saying stuff, and you're not sure. You know, some people think you know Daniel's talking about helicopters, but you know maybe he's just talking about something that's going to happen uh, down the line some other time, and people are confused about that. And then we get in the New Testament. Then that seems to make a little more sense because then we have Jesus, and that story seems a little easier. But then there's a lot of stuff to know about that. I mean, then you have Paul talking about all this other stuff, and people are arguing about it, you know, predestination. Do we like the word? Do we not like the word? And it's just a lot, right? So how do we make sense of this big book with a lot going on? This is one good way to remember this, uh, to understand your, your Bible. And if you uh, young people, if you are listening very carefully, as you should be right now, remember this. Uh, your next blank there. The Bible is one story. It's one story. Now, yes, there's a lot of different stories, a lot of different laws, a lot of different things going on. But when you look at the Bible as a whole, it is just one story. It's uh, it, beginning with creation and due to the fall, it focuses on God's redemption of his creation. And as you go through Scripture, if you just remember that, that this is a story of God's creation, and due to the fall, he is redeeming his creation, including us. This is a way to understand, as you are going through these stories, particularly in the Old Testament. So if you look at your next little... uh, your next little section there, you'll see this weird graph with numbers and arrows and uh, bumps on it. And it might look a little confusing at first. Uh, so let's uh, figure this out. Uh, how many of you guys remember um, literature class in high school? Okay, I see those hands. There were two. Okay, uh, literature class in high school. Now, some of you probably had uh, different degrees of uh, expertise in those classes. I was in a very small Christian school, so the expertise my literature teacher had was she really enjoyed reading. I don't think she had a degree in uh, literature or anything like that, but she did enjoy reading, and so that's, uh, that's great. Um, so, uh, do you remember the plot line? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, I see. Someone's nodding here. All right, the plot line. So in a plot line, it kind of shows you how a story works. And so you start off with the setting. So remember that? Start off with the setting. There's, you know, if you read Romeo and Juliet, Romeo is sad because a girl didn't like him. Uh, Really deep stuff. And then there's this little moment that happens that if that little moment didn't happen, none of the rest of the story would happen. And so that's uh, when Romeo, if you remember, I don't know if Romeo is a good thing to talk about at Sunday school, but here we are. Um, it's too late. So, uh, so he was invited to a party. If that didn't happen, the rest, he wouldn't have met Juliet, and there, it would just be called Romeo. And he'd be really sad, and that would be the whole play. But instead, he met Juliet because he went to the party. And then you have what's called the rising action. All this stuff happens and, and stuff like that. And then at the top... This is where your literature teacher probably got it wrong. What's at the top? Right, that's right. Your literature teacher probably said the climax. 
that that is not the case. Because if the climax happened in the middle of every story, then why would you keep watching? Why would you keep reading? Uh, that wouldn't make sense. I mean, the best part of the whole thing happens in the middle, then what's the rest of the thing for? I don't know. It's hard enough to get through books, if you ask me. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the plot line the way it's supposed to be, and then apply it to the story of Joseph. And then we're going to see how this is, how we're to look at different stories in the Old Testament, what it points to, and what we can learn from them. So if you look on your little graph there, um, and this is where those of you that didn't print out the uh, handout, this is where you are punished. Because if you, if you didn't print it out, you're not going to know what we're talking about. All right, so the first little part there, number one, just fill in uh, the setting. Setting. So when you're looking at uh, a story, you should be looking at the setting first. What's going on? What's the context? Why is this? Uh, what should I be uh, looking at here? And, um, and uh, with, with Joseph, what's the, what's the setting with Joseph? Do you remember the story? How does it start out? Uh, the setting's kind of short, but it's there. Uh, what do you know about Joseph right away? He was the favorite. That's right. Yes. How many of you were the favorite? Be honest. Yeah, the favorites never want to admit it. But uh, there's probably one of you that were. Okay, so uh, so Joseph was the favorite, all right? And he, uh, he was liked more by his dad than, uh, than any of the other brothers. And uh, here's a little secret <laughs> for you parents. Uh, the children know. They know. So just be, be aware. Uh, okay, so that's not the point. The point is that Joseph was favored among his brothers, and his dad kind of uh, showed that. Um, and we know that because of the coat of many colors and whatnot. So that's kind of the setting, right? Then there's what we call, number two, the inciting moment. The inciting moment. That means it's the moment that if that moment hadn't happened, the rest of the story wouldn't have happened. It's that key little thing. What is that key little thing that happens that makes the rest of the story possible? Does anyone know what it was with Joseph? Part of the setting is that Joseph had this dream. Not only did his dad like him more than the rest of his brothers, but then he has this dream where his brothers kind of basically bow down to him. Now, Joseph must have been a sweet guy that just didn't get, just didn't catch on that uh, he should probably just keep that little dream to himself. But instead... He's one of those kids, probably, that just thought the best out of everybody and thought, my brothers are going to think this is amazing. <laughs> so he goes, he goes to his brothers and say, guys, guess what? I had this incredible dream uh, where you guys basically just bowed down to me. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Uh, they didn't like that. Um, so if he hadn't have told them that, uh, probably the rest of the story would have had to happen a different way. But he did tell them. So that's the inciting moment. That's where that happens with dear Joseph. Um, number three there is the rising action. So a lot of really interesting stuff happens to Joseph during that rising action. It's leading to something. It's going to point to something. So the brothers start plotting. 
uh, Joseph um, if, uh, is sold to Potiphar. If you remember, he is, uh, they, dig the, they put him in a pit. They sell him off. Those people that bought him sell him off to Potiphar. Potiphar has him. Uh, Potiphar's wife um, tries to make a move on Joseph. Joseph runs away, but Potiphar's wife lies, and Joseph is imprisoned. And so then uh, the baker and the cupbearer uh, have these dreams that uh, he meets them in prison. and um, They have these dreams, and he interprets them. One is really bad news to one guy, and the other guy, it's good news, uh, he gets to leave. Uh, Joseph says, uh, hey, don't forget me. And the guy goes, I won't. Thank you so much for telling me that wonderful news. The guy leaves prison and then forgets about him. But then Pharaoh has a dream. Remember that? This is all the rising action. It's leading to something very important exciting. And uh, Pharaoh has this dream um, and needs someone to interpret it. And the guy remembers Joseph and says, hey, I know this guy in prison that uh, interprets dreams. And so they drag Joseph over. And what does the dream mean? Uh, does anyone remember what, uh, what Pharaoh had this, what the dream, the dream was about? Or, well, anyway, it was about there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And Joseph figured that out and uh, told him about it. And uh, so Joseph is put in a place of, of high honor. And Joseph has a decision to make. How am I going to deal with these seven years of plenty and prepare for the seven years of famine? This is what we call a crisis. And that is number four. At the top, you will see that there are, uh, there's always a crisis that every uh, story has where the main character has to make a decision. And whatever that decision he makes... Uh, leads to the what we call the falling action. Falling action is action that leads to our climax eventually when we get there. So what did uh, Joseph decide to do? Yes, that's right. Build up uh, storehouses to store all the grain uh, ahead of time uh, while the plenty is plenty, right? And he stores it up and uh, is able to save uh, Egypt. But what else happens? Well, you have uh, his family is starting to get hungry, right? And so they come down and his brother, he sees his brothers and all that sort of stuff. This is what we call the falling action. Because Egypt was uh, taken care of by Joseph, now his brothers come and, you know, he kind of messes with them a little bit. Uh, sends them away, but then hides stuff in their bags so they have to come back. And they're worried about it. He meets his brother Benjamin. And then what happens? What's the climax of that story? You know this. For the, uh, Joseph forgives his brothers. Thank you. I don't know why the rest of the guys aren't participating. Because this, I think you just know all the answers. <laughs> so Joseph forgives his brothers, yes, and um, and that's the climax of the story. He reveals himself as Joseph, the guy that you guys were sold me off to 
slavery. You thought I was probably dead and gone. And here I am. You're bowing to me, which goes back to what? That dream, right? And what we see is we see that Joseph has been a redeemer for the people of Israel, right? Or Jacob. So Jacob uh, and his family is saved, which is the people of Israel, that Joseph redeemed. They were in trouble. Joseph redeemed them. And we see even, um, so that's uh, number five was falling action. Number six was climax. And number seven is, I guess you can just put like uh, resolution. Yeah, we don't have to call it. Anything weird like the denouement, which is uh, French for the end of the story. Okay, so. (laughs) Yeah, it's French, so it's, you know, who knows? (laughs) So so the the end of the story or the resolution is that uh, uh, Jacob and his family go to Egypt and are able to prosper because of Joseph and his wise uh, counsel to Pharaoh. And Joseph becomes a redeemer, right, of his people. So what we're seeing in this particular story is that there seems to be, at the climax, a saving, a redemption, right? Where the people of Israel seem to be in trouble, and God raises someone up to save them. This happens over and over in, in Judges. It happened in the uh, book of Ruth. It happens in the book of Esther. It happens in every story where the climax is basically a saving of God's people. And why is that? Because the stories in the Old Testament are pointing to the big story of God's redemption of his people, his creation. Now, is that all these stories are doing? In other words, are these stories simply just ways to get to talk about Jesus and his redemption of us? Is that all these stories are for? So when we read Joseph, Joseph himself really isn't that important. It's that he redeemed his people, and that points to Jesus, and that's all we need to know. Is that it? All right, sheds light on God's wisdom. What else? What was that? Through the use of the stories. Good, good. What was the most important thing that I was telling you about being created in God's image? Being created in God's image is a what? It's personal. That's right. It's a personal activity that God did on our part. If we make the stories in the Old Testament impersonal, and all they're doing is just pointing at Christ, and that's all they're doing, then we have uh, grossly misunderstood the Old Testament. Grossly misunderstood. So, One of the main things it does to help us understand the whole story of Scripture is that it points to to Christ's uh, redemption, which is wonderful. That helps us understand how the whole big story is happening. But there's a lot of personal things going on in these stories. 
And if we miss the personal aspect of these stories, we are wasting the wisdom of God in his book. This is why our pastor spent uh, so much time in the Old Testament in our evening services talking about David. If all uh, Andrew did was just say, now isn't David wonderful because David points to Christ. And that's all he said, even though that sounds really spiritual, right? It sounds super spiritual because David points to Christ. There's nothing more to know about David than that. Uh, then we have wasted great wisdom and great uh, importance and doctrine that we can know even from the Old Testament. So a way of being able to wrap your hands around Scripture is to know the big story and that the other stories point to that big story. But if we forget that those little stories are personal, they are personal letters to us, um, it would be tragic now, we know that there is a big story. Um, we see that big story, e even if we follow the same plot line in the big story of Scripture, right? The big story of Scripture starts off with a setting, God's creation. And that creation is good. It is perfect. It is the way it ought to be. And within that good and perfect creation, God has established a covenant with Adam, and he appoints that covenant to Adam to carry it out as the head of that covenant. What we see is we see this inciting moment, right? The inciting moment is Satan approaches Eve. And Eve uh, falls. And Adam comes and receives the fruit. And because of what Adam did, because of Adam's sin, we all fall because he was the covenant keeper and he broke that covenant. And so that leads all the rising action. All that rising action leads to a crisis that Christ comes to in the garden where he says, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And that leads to the falling action where Christ is crucified and, uh, and dead, and buried. And what's the climax? Resurrection, right? And it's in that resurrection that we find our redemption. Without the resurrection, there is no redemption. And the after action, or the, uh, what'd you call it again? Uh, the numbers, what was that? The resolution. And the resolution, of course, is how we argue about the end times, right? <laughs> how uh, God will, Christ will come again and uh, redeem even the earth itself. So, what is another way for us to understand the Old Testament? Now that we know that the Old Testament is written in a personal way, and these stories point to the big story, but those stories are important to our lives in understanding these personal uh, stories in a way that, that we understand these people, how they have acted in their stories. Another way of understanding the Old Testament is reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And if you look on your handout there, if you look at Acts 7, 9 through 17, Stephen 
focuses on Joseph's, uh, on Joseph, and even talks about how Joseph's uh, redeeming his people is an important part of the history of Israel. And he speaks of Joseph's uh, redemption of the people through his wisdom of, uh, of maintaining um, the, uh, the work of saving uh, food for, this, for when the famine comes. So here are, some, here are some patterns I want you to look at. Pattern number one. The one uh, big story, that's your next uh, blank there, the one big story of redemption has many stories that point to the big story. So those of you uh, younger people, as you look at Scripture, don't think of it as a big confusing book of all kinds of stuff that is, uh, that is detailed and difficult to understand. There are details, and it is difficult to understand. However... When you see Scripture as one big story in which the, all the other stories are pointing to that story, you understand that you can wrap your head around this. It is understandable. And there's an important reason why it was written this way. Um, pattern number two, you will notice that there's one big covenant. Call that the covenant of grace. That's a covenant made that we see uh, when... Uh, Christ is promised to fix the problem of sin. Not just to fix the problem of sin, but even to be the sacrifice for it. And what we see is the one big covenant has has little mini covenants that point to that big covenant as we move through the Old Testament into the new. That leads to our new covenant through Christ. And that's important to understand because there are, uh, as you talk to other people and see people, other people's view of Scripture, it might be that they uh, might not like this idea of having a big covenant like the covenant of grace. That is the overarching covenant of our redemption. But... One way we could answer them and help them understand our point of view is help them understand the whole pattern of Scripture. The pattern of Scripture is to demonstrate the overarching redemption of Christ, the big story, and that that big story is supported, pointed to, and even contributing to um, that big story of redemption. In the same way, we, we see the big, the big covenant of grace with the smaller covenants, we can call them administrations, um, of the other covenants that support, point to, and even contribute to that big covenant of grace. And when we see these kinds of patterns in Scripture, what we see is that we are not trying to impose necessarily a way of reading Scripture onto Scripture, but we're looking at the patterns of Scripture and saying, what are the patterns of Scripture doing? And accepting those patterns as people made in the image of God. 
that those patterns were made for us because we were made in a particular way. In fact, the best way that God could have communicated his word to us would be the exact way he did right here through stories, through poetry, and through letters. That is the best way he could have communicated to us because that is the personal way in which God communicated to us. And if God communicated that way to us personally, and he made us in a personal way, then this is the best, clearest way we could possibly have his word. And it's why we want to look at those patterns and trust those patterns. Those patterns are uh, helpful to us, and we don't have to resist them. I was talking to a friend who does not share our, we could call it covenantal theology. Um, He doesn't share uh, my view in that. Uh, But he was saying, well, I do believe that God had one specific plan the whole time. I said, oh, that's great. I mean, isn't that important that no matter what we believe, no matter how we differ with brothers uh, in Christianity, that we all agree that God's one plan was God's one plan. That God was not taken by surprise by the fall. He was not taken by surprise by Israel's rejection of him. And he quickly thought of a plan B. Let's try the Gentiles, see how that goes. Um, we don't want to think that God is like that. Scripture preaches against that constantly. It would be an impossible view of God. But our brothers in Christ, we at least we could all agree, whether uh, you are a dispensationalist or if you understand what that word means or a covenantal uh, theologian or whatever it is, we can all agree that God had one plan. And the question is, what is the character of that plan? Is that plan merely rational? Is that how that plan works? What is the the main characteristic of the one plan God had? We look through Scripture, the only conclusion we can really come to is that God works his plans through his covenants. Right? God works his plans through his covenants. Even if you are the most dispensationally dispensational person in the universe, you have to admit that we are in the new covenant under Christ, who is even called the covenant. So if God's plan is being worked out through his covenants, then what can we say about his overall plan? Could we not say that his overall plan is covenantal? Because that is how he deals with us, his people. He deals with us covenantally. And that one plan is a covenantal plan. We call that big plan, the big, big plan, the covenant of redemption. The plan that was chosen before the foundation of the world. And when we think about our redemption, we think of the big covenant of grace, in which all those other covenants support, contribute to, the big covenant of grace. And so the last thing I want to say to you is the last pattern there. The Bible is constructed as a covenantal document 
And God did this because we are covenantal beings. God made us in a covenantal way. And that's why he communicated to us with a document like we have before us in a covenantal way so that we can even call our scriptures a covenantal document. Say this because we all believe in a God that not only makes promises, but keeps them. And he does this by making promises not within the context of a rational syllogism. But instead, he makes his promises within the context of a story. And you cannot separate his promises from the story in which he makes them. Okay, If you weren't listening, I want to say it one more time. You cannot separate the promises God makes from the story in which he made them. And if you understand that, you understand that God's whole book is how he is carrying out his promises. And even in Joseph, he is carrying out his promises in Joseph's story. It is good for you to know the character of Joseph. It is good for you to know how God used Joseph. And that our God of the Old Testament is the same God carrying out his promises in the New. In fact, if it weren't for the Old Testament, what uh, would the New Testament even mean? And so what we find is the Old Testament and New Testament are not separate worlds, but are two pieces of, of God's big story that are in desperate need of each other. And it is part of Look at Scripture. My hope for you is as you read the Old Testament, you anticipate the New and notice how our, the book God has given us, our Scriptures, is one story. It is one book saying one thing about God's people and demonstrating God's work in our lives in his redemption. So I hope that is helpful to you. Hope that uh, you can continue to make sense of that little uh, outline, that little structure I gave you. Um, My challenge for you this week is to read through some of the stories in the Old Testament and see if you can follow along with your plot line and uh, take the challenge to see if the climax really does reveal a moment of redemption for God's people. And then really study these people in a personal way. Um, If you need to, go back to some of the sermons that Andrew has preached on David and see how he is doing it and showing how you can understand these people in a personal way, because that's exactly how God desires us to read his word. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get ready for our morning service. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your goodness to us in giving us your word, that you have blessed us particularly in giving us an infallible, inerrant book that we are able to study who you are and what you have done so that we may know how to uh, live our lives and to live our lives to our God. Lord, we pray for your blessing over the service that is coming up next. Pray that uh, our hearts will be prepared for it, 
we will confess our sins to you and be ready for the Spirit's work through what Andrew has to say to us today. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.